0: Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland area attorney and Republican factotum, Jay Carson.
1: Good morning, Mike. How you doing, Jay? Well, we had some technical issues this morning, but aside from that, I'm pretty good.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm feeling a little tired, and I wonder if it's just because we had such a crazy week politically. So why don't we just sort of... Get right into it. Yeah. You know, so we obviously are going to lead off with the a furor over thousands of family separations resulting from the Trump administration's zero tolerance illegal immigration policy, which was announced uh, at the beginning of April by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Now. There's an awful lot to cover here. So I'm just going to try my best to hit all the major elements. And and when I'm done, Jay, let me know if there's anything I I missed. I will
1: interrupt as needed.
0: Okay. So there was a massive outcry over family separations at the border this week, with both Democrats and Republicans calling for the policy to stop. Now, the White House put out a, well, a variety of messages. But to me, the main one was that they were simply enforcing the law and that the administration's hands were tied absent uh, Congress acting to change the law. Now, there was strong bipartisan pushback on this because both the Obama and the Bush administrations working under the same laws didn't separate families. And, And critics pointed out that they could do this through their perfectly acceptable use of prosecutorial discretion, and that it really was a policy change by the Trump administration, that zero tolerance policy that was responsible or at fault. Um. Now, most polling shows the public strongly opposed the family separation, though, though there was at least one poll where a small minority of Republicans supported the administration's position. But throughout the week, as the pressure ratcheted up, President Trump finally well I hate to use the word capitulated, but we'll use it uh, capitulated and, and signed an executive <laughs> order and Yeah, there you go ending the family separations, despite the fact that only a few days earlier he said that he couldn't do anything. Now, under the order, parents will still be prosecuted or can still be prosecuted, uh, but their children will be kept in custody with them. Now, as things stand, this then creates a potential conflict with the 1997 Flores settlement, which has been interpreted by the courts to disallow detaining children for more than 20 days. And even though the administration plans to put family cases at at the head of the line— If they can't reach a a conclusion after 20 days, the parents would presumably have to be released with their children, which was more or less what the Obama and Bush administrations did. And 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 what
1: what is what is colloquially referred to as catch and release. Yeah,
0: uh, at least on the right. Right now. Late this, well, and, well, I should also point out that uh, I mean, there's, there are reports there's first
1: to that in, in that you just said, I mean, they, they are caught and then yeah. later, well, they're released. So. Yeah, I think
0: the problem that some people on the left have with it, myself included, is it's sort of a dehumanizing sort of phrase. You use that for fish and things like that. But sure. anyway, uh, also, I should point out that uh, late in the week, the administration said that prosecutions of families will actually stop until adequate holding facilities can be constructed. Um, now, while all this is going on, the House Republicans have been working on an immigration bill that would address the family separation issue. But despite all the public pressure, negotiations broke down. There's some talk of maybe a vote this coming week. We'll see. But Republican leaders chose to put the bill together with within their caucus alone, without getting any Democratic input or anything like that, which means that it's almost certain not to pass in the Senate where nine Democratic votes would be needed. And President Trump himself pointed this out, saying that was basically pointless for the House to pass legislation and calling on voters to elect more Republicans in what he termed the red wave in 2018. So I think that brings us pretty much up to date as of Today Saturday the twenty third of June, Jay, are there any key points that I'm missing I, would, here?
1: I would I would add a couple things okay. um, uh, first of all, I think there has been a uh, the media handling of this has has been a little more than a little troubling um the the sort of the 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 little girl who sort of became the face uh, of this issue of the parent separation issue turns out to have not been separated from her parents. Uh, at all. ever yet, the media continues to run with with that picture, Time magazine, in fact, putting it on its cover despite knowing uh, that this this girl who was crying was was not separated from her parents. Um, so that's that's one thing. I, the other the other piece of this uh, that again, I think this isn't so much the the policy part of it. this is the politics and just how it's been spun. Uh, I think there's been a massive overreaction on the left uh saying that this is this is you know tantamount to uh you know what happened in the japanese internment um uh, others comparing this to concentration camps in auschwitz uh and to to that extent uh i mean that that's 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 so far over the top and i think what what you you pointed out is we are really in sort of a catch-22 situation um uh we there are laws on the books um that say it is illegal to cross illegally uh, into the U.S. Now, again, there's a there is a uh, uh, manner if you go to a a recognized border crossing station, show up and say, "Hi, I'm here. I want asylum." Um, there is a a different process than if you try to cross somewhere outside uh, and are apprehended. Um, uh, nice. That said, I mean that that process isn't great either. You are uh, sort of your, but but there's not the uh, incarceration issue that that goes with uh, uh, and and the and family separation piece that flows from it. Um, but I, you know, look, I mean, I, I don't know that there's any way out of this other than Congress to to change the law um, if we're going to say that we're actually going to enforce um, the you know you know and prevent illegal crossings well, or well, prosecute them.
0: Well, let me ask you about that because as I said, under not just the Obama administration, but the Bush administration, the, the same laws were on the books. And I mean, I don't know. That not anyone... to enforce them. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, that's one way to one way to say it. But it's also, you know, true that in any aspect of law, the idea that every single person who commits a crime will be prosecuted is just something that doesn't happen i mean uh, you know that that's what that's right. where prosecutorial discretion comes in and right. so the idea that the trump administration just simply there is nothing they could do that's simply not the case that, that no, i mean that's you're, that's you're, wrong. no
1: you're correct you're correct there no i i think that's right for him to say that um th- there's no such thing as prosecutorial discretion now there is i think the issue and and we talked about this uh uh, a while back during the Obama administration on the Dreamers, um, there's one thing to say. There's there's uh, uh, prosecutorial discretion. And there is another to to say, I am simply not going to enforce this law. Prosecutorial discretion is is more typically a case by case basis saying, look, I, I, you know, the prosecutor doesn't want to bring this case because, well, it's not super strong. Uh, You know, there's there's, you know, likely we might win or we might we might lose uh, or or whatever that the. the resources that we would be put into this prosecution versus the public interest in having this person prosecuted, uh, just there's there's no match there. And that's, you know, for example, on, uh, say, uh, a lot of illegal immigration questions. Look, how much uh, good is being done uh, by prosecuting, you know, a particular uh, illegal immigrant Um you know, versus the resources expended. But I think there's there's a problem and and you know it's it's not a small problem in just saying prosecutorial discretion, we're not going to enforce this act. Um, uh, you know, and, and the reason we're not going to do it well, cause it's sort of inconvenient,
0: but that's uh, not really what we're saying. And I would, I would object to the term inconvenient. I, I would say that the family separation oh, thing reason, is yeah. is more than that. It's inhumane, but, uh, no, no, no. I'm, I mean the other way around.
1: I mean, uh, uh, not, uh, that, that saying that, uh, um, we're not going to prosecute because uh, you know it's going to be tremendous amount of resources that we would have to 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 uh, commit to it. Um,
0: sure, but I mean that's part of it is if you don't have the resources to prosecute everyone, you have to make decisions, and and that's the other part of this that I wanted to point out. Regardless of how you feel about zero tolerance as a policy, and you know I, I should point out that I think it's a horrible policy for a lot of reasons. I think it's un-American. I think it's un All that kind of stuff, but. I will admit that there are people who advance this policy who are well-meaning, non-racist sort of people who believe it's the right thing to do. That said, the way this was rolled out was yet another example of, of, of Trump administration administrative incompetence. A- a- let me explain yeah. what I mean by this. So Jeff Sessions announces this at the beginning of April. Well, number one, you don't roll out a policy unless you have the infrastructure in place to take care of it. And clearly the administration didn't have the infrastructure in place. I mean, right now they're saying, well, we're you know, we're hurriedly constructing facilities to kind of deal with this. The time to do that is actually before you announce the policy. You have everything ready to go. You say we have these facilities, we can make up more than you know the people that are coming in, and it's set to go, and then you announce the policy. They did this backwards, and this is not just an isolated incident. now this is yet another example of just an incredibly administratively incompetent administration and my guess my guess is that it relates to more than anything else just a great impatience starting from the president who sees these immigration numbers and says let's we need to do something now, and that's exactly right. the wrong way to go about. I mean comparatively speaking, this makes the Obamacare rollout look like a like a massive success so this this to me is is certainly a questionable policy, one I disagree with, but also one that was rolled out in an incredibly incompetent way
1: no i I, I have to agree with you on that. Um, I think the better way to have done this uh, would have been. You know, look, this 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 should have been starting back in during the campaign. You should have had your your immigration policy people thinking, OK, here's here's what we'll do. If, if we're going to say we are actually going to enforce uh, our laws as far yes. as, uh, you know, then then, OK, here's going to be here's what the policy is going to be. Uh, we're we're aware of the Flores um, uh, settlement uh, uh, situation. Uh, here's what we have to do to comply with that uh, and and take those steps there. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Now, now, again, now let's. I mean, but I want to. I want to point out sort of the difficulty that that we have here. If you, if the plan is, listen, if someone is apprehended and look uh, on on uh, illegal border crossing, uh, in most cases, without assuming there's no aggravating circumstances, trafficking, that kind of stuff, uh, it's a it's a misdemeanor. Um, it is it is sort of like getting the speeding ticket. Uh, right. you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, it is, you know, or whatever, a public intoxication, it, it is a, uh, typically not something that one is, is, uh, jailed for, um, perhaps, you know, it, it, but the nature of this problem is something different than, uh, a speeding ticket, uh, sure. where you can get your ticket and they say all right, here you go. Uh, If you want to contest this, show up in court next month.
0: Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a really important point. And one thing on that I wanted to point out is that there are these things called alternatives to detention. Uh, Ankle monitors is probably the most commonly known one. And a couple of things about that. Obviously, most people would say that's far more humane than detaining people for misdemeanors. It's also... I'm sure it comes as no surprise, far less expensive. But not only that, according to a recent ICE report, well over 90% of the people who are, who are detained using these, well, detained, you know what I mean, using okay. these alternatives to detention show up for their hearings. So this, to me, I mean, it certainly doesn't sound seem as tough, you know. Oh, we're releasing them into the country to do whatever nefarious things they'll do, which is generally well, no, no, nothing. no. no. I,
1: I wouldn't, I wouldn't even. know. I wouldn't even argue ne, do whatever nefarious things. Well, I mean, I mean the, the problem is well, uh, uh, but they're being people released into the country, and this is this is how we sort of arrived at the immigration problem we have now,
0: Except, where there are are, sure. are
1: millions of, of people here because we, you know, they came in uh, and, and, you know, perhaps didn't show up for, for hearing, didn't show up to get a visa renewed to, for, you know, whatever. Um, and now we're in a situation of, well, what, what do we do with them? You know, but, we, but, we can't deport them all and we, you know, so. But if,
0: but if well over 90% show up, and I think the figure I saw was, I want to say 96 point something, uh, from this report, then that's not really, the issue here i mean you could say well it should be 100% and 100% would show up if they're detained but you know there's a cost benefit type of uh, analysis you run here not just for not just for cost costs but also for uh, you know how humane it is or if you don't want to look at it that way the optics of yeah. it and so the the question if alternatives to detention are that effective that much more humane and that much less expensive then the question really isn't the, the concern really isn't so much that you know a lot of people aren't showing up for that. The concern is what happens after that hearing. That's a different problem. And,
1: right. Well, but here's here's the other thing though, and and I agree with you. I, I may I we might tussle on the the expense. Um, uh, that's something I'd, I'd have to look up when you're talking about these sort of you know massive significant numbers. Uh, and, and who pays for the, the monitoring and the, the ankle bracelets and all that. I mean, uh, it's, it's one thing for a, a local community to have, uh, say, you know, whatever, a couple thousand people on, uh, uh monitoring, uh, it's something else to say when you have, you know, the number is 50,000 a month, uh, in this, this latest couple, couple waves, uh, that's, that's just a different, um.
0: Well, and uh, also I should point out that not everyone who crosses the border illegally it's not. It wouldn't be a case where just throw an ankle monitor on them and and let them go. I mean, it depends on the individual circumstances. Sure. So, so I mean, this is the kind of thing where, for instance, in instances where those people who are crossing with their families, that might be a first option for them as opposed to right. you know your you know other folks and so forth. Right. So
1: well, it, well, the other thing I was going to th- th- point out though, even with those, there still has to be. Some sort of initial detention and, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, arraignment. I guess. So sure, I guess for is.
0: evaluation and that kind yeah. of thing. Absolutely. So, so,
1: I mean, you, you, I mean, and when you have this many people, uh, it's not like you just sort of stop at the border and and okay, here's your monitor, uh, see you later. They've, sure. You know, it, it's it's there is necessarily a a piece of of you're being held until you can see a, a uh, judge, magistrate, whatever, uh, to be charged, uh, and then they give you your court date and say, okay, here's your ankle monitor, come back. Um, and, and that's a lot of what we're, we're talking about. And the Trump administration has made this point, and I think to some to sort of pretty credibly. Um, these these separations are not permanent separations. They're, in many cases, I mean, the way it's supposed to work is uh, the the parent is is uh you know taken to court to be charged uh and then there is a a initial separation time after which they're they're reunited yeah now that's that's again that's that's the way it's supposed to work in theory and i understand there are there are stories out there that that's not how it's always working in practice
0: but but it's problematic even in theory even if it's a short separation because there's a wealth of information uh, and and research demonstrating that especially for very young children that sort of separation even if it's for a week or two weeks can be incredibly psychologically damaging to oh, these yeah. well, kids I, my
1: my understanding though is is the procedure it's supposed to be like a 24 to 48 hours
0: Well, I mean uh, yeah and but even even no, then, again
1: and I won't argue that, that that's not uh, yeah. you know traumatic either but um you know, I think the the media has has spun this again into this idea of internment camps and concentration camps, and I think that's that's unconscionable.
0: Sure, there there um, are some people who are focusing on uh, isolated incidents, the worst of the worst, and not trying to paint a, a fair and complete picture. Absolutely, that happens. Oh, no, no, no. All I mean, I, I no.
1: I, I I push back a little bit. There was a uh, uh, Jay Winnick, uh, the historian, uh, had a piece in the Wall Street Journal uh, last week. Um, and and Winnick, I, I really i've I've read uh, some of his books. Um, I have no idea what his uh, you know his uh, ideological you right. know background is, but uh, no, I mean, even if you say the worst of the worst uh, situations in this case is nowhere close uh, to a concentration camp. and he made that point really in pretty shocking, startling terms well sure um and and, and I know, I, I mean, I, I think this is I usually don't. Don't like that. Hey, we got to push back and say, hey, this is this is beyond the pale. But I I think in this case, some of the things comparing um, uh, what we're talking about now to to Auschwitz. Of course.
0: But the responsible mainstream media isn't doing that. I mean, I know because I I mean, I know that there are voices on the left who are saying that just like there are crazy voices on the right in any given issue. But the fact of the matter is, is if you get your news from a basic. Middle of the road kind of mainstream outlet like the New York Times or the Washington Post, you're not seeing these crazy comparisons to Auschwitz.
1: Well, no, but but nor are you seeing any um, uh, disclaiming that either.
0: I mean, I think that's sure. Sure, I guess they could send articles by saying, "Well, you know, this isn't like Auschwitz," but I mean, you know, I mean, there are if we spent all of our time, there are
1: there are there are you know the voices that 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 say, "Oh, this is this is." Beyond the pale, and and in some cases, I, I think those outlets have had uh, op-ed pieces, uh, if not uh, the Nazi comparison, then certainly the Japanese internment comparison, um, which which again is is a, that's
0: a different comparison, and I think it's a little more apt.
1: Well, I I would disagree but, with you, but at the, least it's the,
0: not beyond the pale. It's not like we're right. bringing Nazis into this. No, I,
1: I agree. Okay, I would I would agree with that. It's it's not beyond the pale. I think it's it's a bad. Uh, comparison. Okay, but.
0: fair enough. You know, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is the you mentioned the the image of the the little girl who wasn't actually out, separated from her parents. Then there was this other thing that came up where uh, Melania Trump got, went to visit that center in Texas and was wearing a jacket that said jacket. I really don't care. Do you? Right. Now, 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 it seems to me that now the President Trump tweeted that. Well, she's talking about the media and so forth. But I would say that once again. I'm not going to try to figure out what, what any Trump's motives are here, okay? I'm going to put that aside. But once again, I th- I would say it's a failure of competence because I find it hard to believe that a, a former model, someone who is very conscious her whole life about her clothing and appearance and that doesn't take care with what she wears. So I don't know what message she was intending to send, but for the most part, people who wear jackets that have huge letters, words, phrases on the back know that that's going to convey a message. And if that person happens to be the first lady of the United States of America, they know even more. So even if by some bizarre, bizarre happenstance, she didn't realize that. I don't know, maybe she was in a fugue <laughs> she state.
1: She was, you know, early yeah. morning, running to catch exactly. the plane. She grabs the wrong just grabs the jacket yeah. out of the closet. Yeah. But,
0: but of course, she has Keep staff. <laughs> and 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 responsible, competent staff would say, "Whoa, whoa, no, I don't know what you're going for with this jacket, but this is probably not the jacket to wear here. Maybe you wear it when you're getting being interviewed by you know a, a media outlet or something like that, but not here because this could be misconstrued even if you don't mean this. So again, I, I certainly understand why people came to the conclusion that she's sending a very kind of you know fu message." But even that aside, it certainly is a failure of competence.
1: Um, You know, look, it's it's hard to disagree with you there. I I, uh, again, I would expect that she's got plenty of other jackets. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) I mean, it's I I, the the only uh, sort of, you know, rational explanation that I I come up with. I don't know that anyone's, you know, made this would would be she wanted to, to do that just to sort of point out. You know, you say I don't care, but look, here I am. And, you know, that kind of thing, Uh, sort of wearing it ironically. Um, But, you know, that's those 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 sort of messages um, that doesn't work when you're first lady.
0: No, no. Ironic messages Uh, like that. Again, it's sort of
1: it's sort of, you know, I mean, I, I. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think I think back to like you know uh, Kurt Cobain appearing on Rolling Stone with the, the T-shirt that said you know corporate magazines still suck or whatever. Um,
0: right.
1: <laughs> sort of, so it's sort of like you can kind of get away with that if was, you're Kurt Cobain, a, yeah, when you're a rock star and and uh, uh, but no, I, I, I that that is it is inexplicable really uh, why she did that. Uh, although again, my my point um, is. Uh, to the on the uh, the image of of the little girl, uh, look. If if you're the media, you know that you are representing something that that's not accurate. Uh, it it is as they as they say fake news. Um, what
0: is? Uh, I'm sorry.
1: Well, using using this this girl uh, as the face of separations uh, when there was no separate when she was not separated from her her family, um, uh, particularly time running this as their cover. See, uh, I understand what you're saying over her,
0: but, but, but to me, I guess, and, and you know, maybe this shows my bias. I don't know. But to me, it doesn't matter really all that much if that particular girl was separated. I mean, to me, it's a, it's a illustration of what's it's going fake, on. But what's that?
1: It is. It's that's no, that's sort of the Dan Rather uh, response of, Fake but accurate.
0: But I mean, to me, it's like it's like if someone drew a cartoon and you'd say, "Well, that cartoon character wasn't a little girl who was separated." I'd say, "Of course not. It's right. just illustrating this." I mean, especially but this isn't a cartoon character. Well, I, well, yeah. Of course it's not. I just I think it was. I think that was blown out of proportion by the right wing media.
1: Well. The, the fact that the left has c- continues to run with that picture uh, I, I think speaks volumes to, to their integrity. Uh, if the idea is that this is, this is so pervasive they can't find uh, another picture of, of someone who actually – uh, was separated uh, from her family, but they're not going to because this one pushes more emotional buttons. And it pushes those buttons in the direction that the, the media wants, wants people to draw the conclusion. <laughs> I mean, look, if you remember, I, I, there was the, and I, I don't want to, I don't know if it was time, I think it was Newsweek, uh, where you had the reporter. Uh, this was in an uh, Israeli uh, uh, rocket attack uh, on Gaza. This was several years ago. Um, and there was like a plume of smoke. and And to make the picture look a little better, uh the the photographer uh photoshopped in lots more plumes of smoke yeah uh and again it's one of these well yeah it's 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 accurate and yeah there was an airstrike and uh but it's it's sort of the one plume of smoke versus the entire city on fire um, they did the
0: same thing with uh, one of them, did the same thing with the OJ Simpson thing. They exactly, made him the look darker picture. and more criminal and all that kind of thing. And, yeah,
1: and you can make the argument that was they did that with the John McCain picture. Well, but e- although even, even though, I mean, I think there's a difference between look, we're shading the picture a little bit. Uh, that you know, look, this is still a real picture of OJ. Uh, uh, perhaps we're, we're showing in an un- unfavorable light as opposed to, um, you know, we're we're photoshopping stuff in, or we're putting someone uh, in to say that this is, you know, as sort of a symbol for for something that 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 she's not.
0: Right. Well, I guess I would agree to the extent that certainly you could find a, a heartrending picture of a little girl who was separated from her parents that wasn't that little girl.
1: Yeah, but so let's well, let's one lesson because I, I I I do want to push back because this is is sort of a big deal for a lot of conservatives and for me is, you know, how hard is it for the media, professional media, to to simply make the judgment call, you know, we shouldn't use that picture because that's not accurate. Let's go with a different picture.
0: Right. And, and I think and they the probably fact that they haven't is yeah, telling. I think they used it because, of course, the, the image has gone viral as they say. And so it's a familiar image and it's kind of been used as the face of it. So I think it was much more, I understand where on the right, you'd say, well, this is a, a, an ideological bias thing. I think it's more just of a sort of a marketing sort of decision. And that doesn't make it any less right, but I think it's coming from more of a, more of a marketing type of mindset than it is from an ideological bias mindset. Okay. All right. Well, there were a whole bunch of other things that happened this week, um, like, for instance, gerrymandering. Jay, you know, we spent a lot of time early, earlier this year talking about gerrymandering. And, mm-hmm. of course, that's because the Supreme Court had several gerrymandering cases on its docket this term, and we were, I think, both interested in their decision. So. Just to recap for everyone, uh, the court for a long time now has held that racial gerrymandering, which is constructing congressional districts based on race, may run afoul of the Constitution, but it's never actually ruled that any sort of partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional.
1: But but to the exception that there is, to some extent, some racial gerrymandering required under the Voting Rights Act.
0: Exactly. Now, in, in 1986, there was a case, Davis versus Bandemir, the court said that partisan gerrymandering could violate the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, but in order for the court to rule on the constitutionality of it, they said they'd need a clear standard as to, well, kind of how much was too much. And Justice Kennedy said the same thing in 2004 when he said uh, that extreme, what he called extreme partisan gerrymandering could be unconstitutional, but a standard was needed. And in the which inter- is where
1: your folks jumped in exactly. with the, yes.
0: Uh, a standard that uh, political scientists and social scientists created called the efficiency gap right. uh, to, to quantify this. Now, during oral arguments of these two cases this year, Justice Roberts called this uh, sociological gobbledygook, um, which was certainly memorable. I think it was ridiculous and simply untrue, but that's another story. Anyway. And that brings us to the rulings, one concerning Republican gerrymandering in Wisconsin and the other on Democratic gerrymandering in Maryland. Now, in both cases, the court decided, well, kind not to decide, at least not yet. In the Maryland case, they released an unsigned opinion saying that because the case hadn't even gone to trial yet, they wouldn't rule on it. In the Wisconsin case, Chief Justice Roberts wrote for a unanimous court that the plaintiffs in Wisconsin hadn't demonstrated that they'd been individually harmed by the gerrymandering, and so therefore they lacked standing to bring the case. And the data presented in this case focused on the state as a whole, not individual districts. But he added that the plaintiffs should be granted the opportunity to demonstrate individual harm uh, at the lower court level. And This isn't necessarily a a hugely difficult hurdle. There are many analysts who don't believe it's going to be that difficult to present the supporting data in a way that focuses on essentially district-level impacts, which is more or less what the court suggested they, they need. Now, there was also a concurring opinion. Justice Kagan, joined by the court's three other liberals, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Breyer, they made it pretty clear, I think, that when the case if this case does come back to the Supreme Court, there's a strong possibility there are going to be four votes in favor of overturning partisan gerrymanders. So yeah, I, I that think that yeah, yeah, I think that kind of brings us up to date. So Jay, I guess what do, you know, what do you think about these decisions? Are, are you disappointed that we didn't get any clarity on this issue?
1: No. First and foremost, I want to, and you could maybe go back and, and check the show when we talked about this, but uh I think one of my first issues was I don't see how these people have standing. Um mm-hmm. I think I raised that. I'm just saying. There you go. Uh, and I I agree with the court. I don't I don't get where you have an individual uh right to standing how have you been harmed um by the fact that voters in some other district uh in your state elect someone else? Uh, to the the state house or, or Congress, who, who is not of of the party you prefer, um, so I I think I think the court did it right both both on the merits uh, that there isn't standing and to the extent that if we really wanna if we're gonna have this out and have this fight, uh, let's have the factual record fully developed and and knock out any of these other uh, side issues, if you will. I and mean, standing isn't necessarily a side issue, but but uh, let's let's have preliminary issues fully resolved before this goes up.
0: Yep. And I, I I think it's good. I I agree entirely with you. Uh, While I, uh, you know, I certainly uh, side more with those who concurred in terms of their thinking about this issue. You know, it's important to point out, this was a unanimous decision, which, which obviously means something. And so I, I, you know, so I, I don't have a lot to say, except that this is an example of all nine members of the court, deciding not to take sort of a a judicially activist stance. And I'm, you know, while I am ideologically left of center, I also am ideologically a a supporter of judicial judicial restraint. And so therefore, I think this was the right decision by the court. I think this will pretty clearly come up before the court again, if not in the next term, in the term after. And while sure. I would love some clarity on this, uh, we, we, have to, we have to wait for this because I don't want the court stepping in before the, time is, before the time is right. So I'm good with this. Okay. Yeah, me too. Awesome. All right, you know, I, I want to talk about. We're talking <laughs> not about that it, not, that it, not that it particularly matters. No, exactly.
1: The Supreme Court because it, it's you know it will happen regardless of our thoughts. Yeah, but, you know,
0: Mike and I say Mike and Jay agree with us, so that's a uh, you know I, you you yeah, brought yeah. up
1: Roberts is like woo. <laughs> you know,
0: you brought up uh, activism and, and restraint, or at least I did, and and so I'd like to talk about the other big Supreme Court case because I think in a weird way that actually. Uh, Speaks to this in a way, and I'm talking about the Supreme Court decision on state sales tax that came down this week. Now, this one wasn't unanimous; it was a a five to four split.
1: It was a weird split.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, basically, they, the court said that states may require online retailers to cha- to charge sales tax on out-of-state sales, and this essentially overturns the court's 1992 decision in Quill versus North Dakota in which the court said that states couldn't impose state sales tax unless the seller had a physical presence in the state. And you're right about that split. The majority the decision was written by Justice Kennedy, joined by Justices Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Ginsburg. And Ginsburg's obviously the odd woman out there. And their argument was that technological change had basically made this 1992 ruling obsolete. And that in the current environment, uh, kind of brick-and-mortar retailers were being unfairly disadvantaged by having to charge sales tax when online competitors didn't, which like makes a lot of sense. But then there was a dissent, which was written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, joined by uh, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, again, a weird split, which argued basically that things may have changed but it's Congress's job to change the law in response to this. And that's why I bring up that judicial restraint thing. Yeah, yes. well, well, the weird thing was here, Jay, is that when I, I first read, obviously, the majority's argument, because that was the one that was presented first, and I, and I thought, yeah, that totally makes sense. It's a weird split, but I'm kind of with the majority. But then I read the dissent and I thought about that. And I was like, you know, I like this from a policy standpoint, this outcome. I think it's more fair, but I think John Roberts... Has it right? And, and it occurs to me when you look at, at Roberts's jurisprudence uh, as the chief justice over a period of he's been on the court for a while now, that's one strain that really seems to come through in a lot of ways. And it's angered both conservatives and liberals, you know, that there were the health care cases and so sure. forth. But he's been pretty... Strongly, I think one thing I see in his jurisprudence is uh, a judicial restraint that we sometimes don't see both from the the justices on the left and the justices on the right. And even though ideologically I disagree with him more than I just dis- than agree with him in terms of policy terms, in terms of the role of the court, I, I think Justice Roberts is is kind of nailing it.
1: Yeah, no, I uh, we're on the same page on this one uh and I think there are there ought to be cause for concern. I have cause for concern anytime a a court opinion sort of leads with the uh this produces a good po- beneficial policy yeah, result. absolutely. That that's our reasoning because because that's not the reasoning uh that the the court ought to apply. That's the reason Congress ought to apply yeah
0: uh
1: and and so often in our system uh, i mean that that distinction is lost. Um, that that it's important not only what decision is made; it's important who makes the decision and who has the authority to make that decision. Uh, and and allowing the judiciary to make too many of those of those of well too many uh, almost all a, any policy decision uh, is is not good for for us as a democracy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, you know, I mean this is a this is a major policy decision. There, uh, one uh, government study indicated that uh, states have missed out on just shy of fourteen billion dollars in sales tax due to this. But, but again, you're absolutely right. It's just saying that this is a, there's a great magnitude to this in policy terms, doesn't mean that the court therefore should it's be our job. exactly yeah. exactly. Yeah. So and now I mean this this
1: may well um, push Congress to do something.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um,
1: and I think that would be appropriate. I I think there are, there are policy concerns that this raises in terms of who does it benefit as, as, as any type of regulatory thing, you know, it essentially is going to benefit the Amazons, uh, the, the big guys, as opposed to mom and pop who are, who are, uh, you know, running a little Etsy store kind of thing, uh, and, and don't have the, uh, uh, Wherewithal to to figure out sales tax in every district and locality uh, throughout the country, um, and and if you figure the the difficulty of of that that job, it's not just of oh, uh, okay this state has this much of a state sales tax, so we'll tack that on. It's oh they're buying it in this county which also has a sales tax on these items, uh, and it's in this city which has a tax on 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 certain items. Um, it can be a you know there there's something like ten thousand different you know taxing districts uh, in the United States, uh, and and for while an Amazon uh, type operator will have the wherewithal um, to figure that all out, um, yeah, or fight it if appropriate. A small you know a smaller again mom and pop online operator will not, and and the the, the pressure is going to be then that these people sort of. Uh, sell out to Amazon get bought out or buy some sort of uh uh you know tax uh tax calculation service from someone like a, a, an Amazon so and
0: that's more generally a problem with with uh, a lot of one-size-fits-all regulation yeah. is it tends to disadvantage the smaller companies also not just coincidentally those that don't tend to have the lobbying power that the, yeah. that the big companies have in dc yeah.
1: and, and so and again I, again I'm not saying that the, regardless that's a Uh, that's a good reason to support the dissent uh, because what I just made were were policy arguments and those arguments that you ought to make before Congress, not the court.
0: But yeah, and that's another reason why it's better for, I think, in many of these cases, Congress to work these things out as opposed to the court because they have the expertise, they're going to hear the voices, and they are complex things to work out, which is why, as a general rule, the court, even when you could argue that they may be able to step in in a policy role tends not to do as good of a job just because they don't have the resource. That's not what they're set up to do.
1: Yeah, no, I would say even the, the bigger point for me is the importance is having Congress decide policy issues is because that's who who's elected, you know, to some extent, it's either you you want a, a republic uh, or not. Um, and, uh, you know, Congress may well reach uh, a result that you don't like or that I don't like, uh, but the fact is, they're still the duly elected representatives to to do that, and there's a uh, a mechanism to change that down the road, as, exactly. as opposed to just a judicial fiat of of, of judges who we don't elect.
0: Yeah, because if you don't like what the court does, you just basically have to wait till someone dies and the court changes. Right. So, yeah, yeah so exactly. It's a, it's a good thing we agreed with. uh
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a good thing we agreed with the first one, you know. But again, you can see yeah. where we are on the second. So.
0: Abs- absolutely. You know, before we get to our next story, we'd like to thank our. Newest supporters, we have this week three new monthly sustaining supporters on Patreon: um, Jesse, Aiden, and Kenneth. So thanks awesome. all. Awesome. Yeah, um, uh, Aiden uh, wrote in, "Hello, Mike, Jay, and Trey, and Ken. I-, I love listening to civil debate, even if some of the things said can be infuriating." to all the listeners you should go to patreon and pledge to politics guys just give them a buck that's what i did well thank you thank, <laughs> thank you, you. Aiden. we do we definitely do appreciate that and, and no i we did not write that comment ourselves that did come from aiden thanks so much um I should point out that in addition to that warm glow you get from helping out, supporters also get access to our exclusive Supporters Only Politics Guys after show. On last week's show, Trey and Ken talked about the free trade, the digital economy versus the manufacturing economy the first female African-American mayor in San Francisco's history. Uh, Trey's very sweaty running habit. Apparently, Trey runs through headphones like, like crazy, um, uh, sweats right through them. Uh, I had no idea. And also, they decided to opine on the crazy things that I do in the weight room. So they really covered a lot of ground there. Um, and, and this week, Jay and I have some pretty interesting stuff lined up uh, for you as well. Also, when you make a pledge of financial support for the show— We'd love to include a message from you and your shout out. So if there's anything you want to pass along, you can include this both in your Patreon uh, contribution, or you can just send us a message at mail at politicsguys.com. So thanks. Uh, if you want to join Jesse, Aiden, Kenneth, and all of our really great Politics Guys supporters, just go to, go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link or politicsguys.com, and you'll see that support thing there, or just click on the Patreon or PayPal links. Thanks so much, guys. All right, moving on. So, government reorganization. You know, that's generally <laughs> what you think about, government reorganization. You know, it doesn't make your heart go pitter-patter, unless you're someone like me. Um, but if you add in Space Force.
1: Space Force. Yeah, you
0: say it so well. Yeah, can you do like oh, an echo effect? I don't know. I should try don't that we figure out. We figured out how to do that, yet. <laughs> but anyway, all of a sudden... Maybe you have something there, and of course, that's exactly what President Trump did this week, calling for a space force to be a new sixth branch of the military, and directing the Department of of Defense to make it so. Did you get my Star Trek reference, Jay? Awesome! There we go. Um, But but while the president can do a lot of organizational reshuffling in the executive branch, he can't actually create a new branch of the military all by himself. That requires congressional legislation. Now, that said, the Air Force, which currently handles most defense-related space stuff through its uh, Air Force Space Command, they can be directed to set up a separate uh, staff and command structure. Will still be under the Department of the Air Force, and by the way, the Department of the Air Force itself was created out of the Army Air Corps after World War II and the 1947 National Security Act. That's the last time we got a new branch of the military. Uh, so, Jay, do, do we need a do we need a Space Force?
1: Um, uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know that we we um, uh, need one, but uh, no, I, I we we need to to do something, and I think it's it's a good. Um, step to take, you know, and, and again, I know it sounds a little silly um, and Trump makes it sound a little silly, um, but uh, uh, look, we are always in competition with other nations and we have, we won the space race and we sort of established space as a, you know, peaceful uh, a place where we will uh, work together and so forth. But that's not necessarily always going to be that way. Um, uh, and I think we need to, to be prepared for that. Um, now, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying we need to build a Death Star,
0: um, well, I should point but... out, but, but I should point out that, that we were signatories to something called the Outer Space Treaty. This was signed in 1967, which prohibits uh, weapons te- weapons testing in space, military bases on other celestial bodies, or putting weapons of mass destruction in orbit around the Earth. And both China and Russia also signed on to this treaty, so uh, Death Stars would be presumably covered buy this. But, but I guess what I was wondering but, uh, about...
1: That, that, you know, that there's also the, the idea that uh, uh, the Russians and the Chinese would would always abide by that.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, there's no enforcement mechanism for so, this thing. But, yeah. but I guess what I was wondering, Jay, since the Air Force Space Command is already doing this, as a sort of a limited government conservative, isn't this creating a separate agency to with, you know, separate staff and structures and all that? Isn't that the kind of administrative bloat that you don't like?
1: Yeah, it typically is. Uh, now there may be something that's that's different, and and look, I'm not going to be the guy to weigh in on to say whether this ought to be a continuing division of the Air Force or or something new. Um, but I, I mean, I guess I'm I'm thinking more just in terms of ought we to, um, um, you know, be be prepared uh, and, and take steps to. Uh, you know, should we ever need to uh, defend uh, assets in space or defend the U.S. in space, uh, we ought to do that. Whether the Air Force does it or whether a separate organization does that, um, you know, I, again, that's, a, that's sort of a management question because I, I can see it from both, both sides. On, on the one hand, uh, you don't want bureaucratic bloat with too many additional agencies uh, doing duplicate stuff. Uh, and you don't want to have agencies that that maybe ought to have overlap, you know. Then having turf wars, uh, but by the same uh, at the same time, you don't want to have other you know agencies like the Air Force get too big, get you know too non-specialized, and other things sure. that that it takes away. So I, I am not I am not a management guru, um, so I, I don't know whether I, you know. And and look, I don't know what there's to to a because we don't really have a, a real you know policy proposal other than just space force <laughs> you
0: know, <laughs> well, I mean, so really you need can, more than that right uh, that we, can, uh, yeah. that we can
1: say okay here's what this other organization would do and and not do and yeah. here's what the Air Force would continue to do or not do um, so no I, I I think it's it's always healthy to re-examine um, uh, where efficiencies efficiencies can be found in government and it's important to re-examine, uh places where government might uh need to do something in the future that we ought to start preparing for yep. I've got so no. that that said i mean i again with the lack of specifics there's not a there's not a ton a ton there so yeah. yeah.
0: But, you know, also this week, while well, on one hand, so the president...
1: Rolling the labor into education. Well, that's yeah, something yeah. Different, on yeah.
0: one hand, so he's saying, let's create this new agency. But then he says, well, let's combine two cabinet departments, labor and education, like you said. And, and the idea apparently is to bring the education department into labor. Ed, education department's a lot smaller. In fact, it's the smallest of the 15 cabinet departments. Also, it's one of the most recent. It was created just in 1979. And the idea, I guess, is to... Better focus education on vocational skills and labor force development. Now, now this is another change that would require congressional approval. So I'd say its prospects aren't exactly super strong at this point. But just as a proposal, what do you think about it, Jay? Uh,
1: you know, uh, again, I think there's, there's something to be said. I, and I'll, I'll be honest. I think there is also... Uh, A conservative push, uh, conservative never, uh, you know, particularly liked, needed, wanted uh, the Department of Education, Federal Department of Education. Um, It was created under the Carter administration and uh, uh, one of Ronald Reagan's unkept campaign promises uh, uh, was to abolish it. Um, uh, So, I mean, I think a lot of conservatives uh, don't have a whole lot of use for a Federal Department of Education when what they – often do is impose standards on states that states don't like. Uh, The other big piece of what the department does uh, now is sort of a a financing arm for for college education and college loans. So there there really are sort of two completely separate missions um, between what the Department of Education does and the Department of Labor does. uh, again, I think it's it's fantastic to encourage more vocational programs. I think that's something that that we need in our country. Uh, we have so many uh, kids who are told that college is the only option, and I don't think that's true. Uh, they can make a great living uh, working in, in uh, a lot of trades, and America needs those those uh, skilled laborers. Um, so I, I'm I'm all for that. Um, you know, just merging these two departments get there uh yeah i don't know uh is it uh is it a step towards sort of winding down the department of education well i don't know yeah um but
0: well you know I,
1: again again there's just there's not enough you know to th- th- to say aha this is um
0: yeah no uh, to me it's kind of weird given everything that's going on just deciding let's throw this thing out here that really isn't going to go anywhere let's use time and energy, and, and I, don't, I don't really get it, I guess, in a way. Maybe you could make a case for it, maybe. And I have so many conflicting views on education, in part because of, you know, what I do for a living in my day job, uh, apart from where I see the future of higher education, especially higher education, going. But it just seemed like an, like an out-of-nowhere, sort of thing well i guess the space force thing was kind of out of nowhere too so so, so i don't know but uh so I, I don't know how i feel about it i guess that like you i would need to see something a little more specific to really I've got my
1: space force music on oh there we go i was trying i was trying to get like cool photon torpedo noises to make when we say every we say space force
0: we could try but... some buck rogers kind of stuff in there yeah. i don't know but but, but anyway um,
1: um so anything more well, on that jay no. Well, I, and other than, I mean, you, you say that this is this is just in part of government. There are a lot of moving pieces. And uh, look, there is one group of, of bureaucrats who were, were apparently tasked with this of, of coming up to what we can do. And here's their report. Um, so I, I don't necessarily agree with this takes away time and energy. Uh, yeah, maybe you're from, right. Yeah. From, 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 you know,
0: yeah, I see your point. Uh, yeah. You
1: know, look, we got. We're still talking with North Korea. We're still, it's, its not like we're—you know—we're somehow going to say, "Whoa, hold on." But—but but I agree. This is this is a back burner issue, uh, and this is one of the things. The way these things work is, uh, it's floated and then it's talked about, and then maybe there's a bill down the line. It probably doesn't go anywhere, and then maybe there's another bill. So it's this is just one of those. Um, again, you float you float the idea and uh, see
0: where see where sure. it starts going. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Well, you know, uh, finally, this week, uh, not finally, as in finally, this great thing happened. Sorry, I meant like this is the last story we'll be talking about today. But uh, this week, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley announced that the United States will be pulling out of the U.N.'s Human Rights Council. Now Haley said that the United States couldn't stay in an organization that was, in her words, a protector of human rights abusers and a cesspool of political bias. I think most people on the right applauded this, saying that it was really kind of high time that the U.S. distanced itself or pull out entirely, obviously, from a group that includes among its current 47 members, notorious human rights abusers like china egypt and saudi arabia and they also argue that the council seemed to exist largely to condemn israel uh jay I, i'm betting i know how you feel about this but why don't you tell me did you like your yeah you and you
1: bet right uh, <laughs> no, i know I I, I I absolutely agree um the nas- the uh, u.n human rights commission uh is and has been a a very bad joke uh for decades Um, it is, you know, it's often said sort of the, uh, uh, hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. And, and that's sort of the, you know, the, the, uh, essence of this is you've had these, these, uh, regimes that are horrible in, in terms of their, um, human rights records, uh, sort of lecturing the rest of the world and and sort of preening that, you know, Oh, look, we're on the human rights commission. Uh, and it is, is made a mockery. So I, I think it is, uh, uh, it, it's good that uh, Nikki Haley is sort of speaking uh, truth to power here um, and uh, and and stepping out. And as far as the anti-Israel virus, uh, I think that's that's hard to argue uh, if you look at the track record of the the um, uh, commission and and it's its proclamations. Uh, I mean it's something like ninety percent or, or something are are aimed at Israel. And there is also what's called uh, on there that's permanent agenda item seven uh, that at every meeting, uh, you know, they bring up and oh, let me. You know, they they start in on on Israel. So um, I, I think uh, I think it's it's good. Uh, I think it's uh, good that uh, the U.S. and uh, other Western powers, I think, should follow that example and not lend legitimacy uh, to this. Uh, uh, you know, what's what's really a sham.
0: Yeah, I understand that viewpoint, um, and, and certainly I think there's no question that the commission, or sorry, the council, is uh, biased against Israel. And, and this uh, coming from me, someone who's you know. A, so
1: are you? <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, that's yeah exactly. Well, yeah. Um, I had a feeling you, I, I walked right into that one. Um, yeah. But but also. I and mean, also that they have just some horrible human rights abusers on it. And just to give people a little background here, this council was created in 2006. It replaced another, uh, another council. I forget the acronym right now. But it wasn't when, a bit it, either. when it was created, it was designed to have regional representation. So they have three-year terms chosen chose, chosen, chosen from uh various geographical regions. The problem is that some of these geographical regions just are basically made up entirely <laughs> of yeah, non-democratic uh, human rights abusers. So uh, what the Bush administration did at the time, this 2006 one was formed, they boycotted it saying basically under the same logic as uh, Nikki Haley uh, announced. President Obama did in 2009, he said, well, you know, it, this is all true, but let's try to work within the organization to make it less biased. Let's try to engage, essentially. And uh, depending on who you talk to, under the Obama administration, certainly the, uh, the anti-Israel bias, even though it's clearly still there, went down if you measure it in terms of number of resolutions against Israel there. And so with this new council, fifty
1: percent less racist. Well, you know, but, (laughs) but, but
0: but I think this is important. Not not so much. Well, I think this is important in a broader sense. It really illustrates to me, it's of a piece with kind of the Trump administration's approach to a lot of these things, saying that pretty clearly, their approach is not to work within flawed agreements to make them better, kind of behind the scenes, applying pressure, that sort of thing. That's not the Trump administration MO, for better or for worse. I I tend to think that the Obama approach is a lot better, but it's pretty clear the Trump administration approach is we want the deals that we want. And if we don't get them, We're going to walk away from the table and we're big enough that our walking away from the table is going to have enough of an impact where we think that's more likely to result in change than our working within the organization. I mean, would you say that's fair?
1: Well, I would say uh, it's a little different saying that we don't get the deals we want versus uh, we don't want to lend our credibility um, to, yeah, I mean, to yeah, this enterprise. Sure.
0: In this particular no, no, case, I mean, I'm, I'm talking understand. about the it broader... The sense of like
1: a G7 or, or an AFTA or something like that, we don't get the deals we want, we'll walk away. Yes, that's very Trumpian. Uh, the idea that um, uh, we should not uh, take part in... Uh, you know, essentially, sort of dining with with uh, dictators and human rights rights abusers, and pretend that we're not doing that. Uh, I think I think it's I think it's a good and healthy thing. Uh, you know, I, I would agree with you that it's it's not the great way to go. though you know, my way or the highway. When you're talking about uh, international trade agreements, uh, but when you're talking about uh, human rights, uh, I, I think that it, it, there's a better case to be made well, for the whether well, to walk
0: away, of course, because. People who, you know, that they're making this strong human rights claim, and we will not be a party of this sort of thing, and and yet, you know, how much did Donald Trump talk about human rights abuses in North Korea when he met with 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 Kim? Uh, you know, it didn't seem like a whole lot. So I, but but to be fair, both Republicans and Democrats always tend to have a more than a little bit hypocritical view when it comes to human rights. Now, that's not all Republicans and Democrats, certainly, but, uh, you know, there's certainly a case of, well, we'll put this in kind of as a side issue sort of thing. Some administrations are better or worse. The Carter administration really tried to put human rights, for instance, on the at, toward the top of the agenda. And we criticized greatly for doing that. I think the Obama administration pushed, certainly pushed more on this than the Trump administration is willing to do. So it's, it, you know, it's really kind of a, a variable sort of thing.
1: Well, I, I think the, the way you, you know, and I've, I've thrown this out numerous times, um, you know, with, with human rights uh, abusers in other countries in the world, I, I think you do what you can where you can. Um. And and the UN commission is a place where we can make that sort of statement, uh, and 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 get some get some good, or at least at least do no harm, uh, if you follow me. So, so uh, I think we, that we've. I mean, look, international uh, uh, politics uh, are complicated, and we have uh, some of these human rights ab- rights abusers are our allies. I mean, notably Egypt, Syria, or not be Syria, <laughs> Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, you know, so and others are, uh, let's put it this way, if not our, our, you know, China, I think, is a perhaps an adversary. Uh, but it's someone as a country with with which we do a lot of business. Um, and, and there's there's different pro- approaches and different lengths that one can go. It, it just it's a matter of. Of, uh, of how much power you have in that relationship. And I think in terms of this this commission and the U.S.'s visibility on it, uh, I think we do have a fair amount of power uh, to be able to, to walk away and Uh, and and sort of demand that if this is going to exist, that they they do better.
0: Sure. Uh, I I see your point. I think it's a good point. I completely disagree with it. Uh, But only in the sense that uh, the analysis of we can do more by walking away, that's all in this particular case. But but I, I certainly understand your logic on that. All right, well, that about does it for this week. Before we go, I want to thank everyone who subscribed to my new interview podcast, Politics Plus, which you know you can find pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts or at PoliticsPlus.us. Um, last week, I talked to uh, Atlanta columnist, former George W. Bush speechwriter. David Frum, who actually I had up on, on the politics, guys. <laughs> I'm a, oh, big, a big fan, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, a big deal, yeah. I, he, yeah, he's a great guy. And we talked about his book, Trumpocracy. Um, and this week, because uh, show's coming out on Monday, I'm going to be talking with conservative writer conservative writer Mona Charon about her new book, Sex Matters, How Modern Feminism Lost Touch with Science, Love, and Common Sense. That
1: is also and, a very big deal.
0: Yeah, that was a really interesting conversation. It was uh, a book I was—I actually learned some things. Was really surprised. So, I, yeah, it's a great conversation. I think. What um, I wanted to point out to everyone, you know, I, I'd like to think, as my first two guests sort of demonstrate, that I'm really trying to bring in a wide variety of views. I mean, David from stridently anti-Trump, but he's definitely a conservative. Um, I think someone, you know, Trump is from is someone that a lot of... So, some would argue definitely was a conservative. Well, yeah, but he's still policy-wise. But he's right far more on the right. Yes. Yeah. And I think a lot of left to center listeners would like that interview. But, you know, I also think he makes some important points that more conservative people should consider. And by way of contrast, Mona Chair, and she's been a big time conservative columnist for, well, a long time. Um. You might recall, Jay, she was kind of more or less booed off the stage at the CPAC not too long ago for saying that, well, maybe we shouldn't be supporting Roy Moore and Donald Trump's yeah, true comments yes, about yes, women yes. and that sort of thing. But her book is without a doubt, not left-wing fem- feminism. In fact, if you're a left-wing, what she calls modern feminist, you take issue with it. But I learned a lot from that. And that's what really I'm trying to do is bring in people from the left and the right because, you know, I feel like. So many interview podcasts I listen to, and I listen to a lot, tend to be a lot of that kind of preaching to the choir, libertarians bring on libertarians, conservatives bring on conservatives. And honestly, I don't learn a lot from that, which is why I wanted to really do this. And so, you know, I hope I hope people uh, want that and will appreciate that. So anyway— um, like I said, it's at politicsplus.us or wherever you get your podcast apps, pretty much. And if you want to let me know what you think about it, uh, you can reach me at mike at politicsplus.us or you can reach me through the Politics Guys email too. That'll work as well. So, anyway, you know, in just a few minutes, uh, Jay and I will be recording our supporters exclusive after show. And I think one thing I know I want to bring up is uh, the death of conservative columnist uh, Charles Krauthammer. And, and um, Canada becoming the second country in the world to legalize marijuana and maybe whether the U S should do that. And, uh, I think there are a couple other things we we'll want to get to. I'm sure you have something for us, Jay. So, uh, yeah. if, if you are interested in checking that out, well, if you're a supporter, it should be already in your uh, podcast, the feed, By the time you hear this, and if you aren't a supporter and you want to listen to that, you want to check it out, just go to politicsguys.com slash support. That's a direct link. Or you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links or support the show. And also, of course, you get that warm glow for knowing you're helping us out. So that's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. Also, subscribing to the show really helps us, as does sharing episodes. Word of mouth, really the best advertising leaving reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes is also a big deal for us. And again, if you want to get in touch, mail at politicsguys.com. There's our Facebook page where we've had a lot of great conversations this week, especially on the immigration issue. That's facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorf, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you join us.